Hello, I'm Patrick Chavis, and you're listening to LA Theater Bites, and I'm here with the creators of the Kaidan Project, and I am here with Chelsea Sutton and Lisa Dring. Hi, how, hello, how, how are you guys doing tonight? Great. Yeah, great. <laughs> Perfect. Cool. T- tell me a little bit about your, your backgrounds, your theater backgrounds, and how did you guys meet up, and uh, how did that lead to the, the Kaidan Project, which was a immersion theater show I saw last year, actually pretty close to about right now, pretty close to about this exact time. Um, it was one of my first uh, 10 out of 10 reviews out of the whole long four years. Um, I just came to your show and didn't know what to expect and just was, uh, I, w- I honestly was blown away. It was it was a fantastic show. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It's still like nothing I've ever seen before. Um, now I've seen quite a few more immersive theater shows and it's still one of those shows that sticks out in the back of my mind as something very creative interesting well well thought out and um i mean i wish i could have saw it again but um um how did this how did you guys meet and how did this all kind of come together as far as an immersive theater project um well we met doing another rogue artist ensemble show um we uh, i i wrote an adaptation of pinocchio called woodboy dogfish i've seen and, it loved it oh yay show. Okay. Um, we did our first production of that in 2015, and Lisa was one of our puppet team. Um, the main puppet for that takes three puppeteers to bring to life, and she was one of those three puppeteers, and that's how we met. Um, that was Lisa. That was your first production with Rogue, right? Yeah. So yeah, so we stayed in touch and we stayed in touch just as a company with Lisa. And then when the Kaidan project came around, um, she and I sort of fell into writing it together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it. we would be remiss if we didn't give a huge shout out to Rogue Artists Ensemble. They were cooking up this project well before we came along. So um, Rogue Artists makes work in a very specific way. Oftentimes they, uh, start a project without a writer and and they develop some work and then they find the right person or in this case people for the job so Sean had a huge part in it as well he I mean we should have had him here tonight but I'm sure he's rehearsing for our next show right now Sean who? Sean who? Sean Coelty he is the artistic director of Rogue Artists Ensemble and he is actually in tech tonight for a different show <laughs> man and that Chelsea is also a writer on um, yeah <laughs> So, um, yeah, and then the show opened October of last year, and I think it was a year and a half prior that I was brought on to do the workshop. Is that when you were also brought on, Chelsea? Yeah, it was the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. Yes, 2016 in the summer. So we had planned to do a workshop in the winter to kind of, we had, there was a thousand different ways this project could go. And we had never really done an immersive show before. So we had an opportunity to do a workshop at the Japanese Gardens in Van Nuys, which is a beautiful space if you've never been there. Um, Very different from the warehouse we ended up in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and we also, um, for a while, we were going to do it in Little Tokyo because East West Mm -hmm. Pierce uh, hosted us. And so originally we were going to start at the theater and walk around the city and then return to the theater. But then when this warehouse popped up, it was so perfect and did so much storytelling by itself that we couldn't say no. Yeah. Right. We, we realized we wanted to control the spaces a lot more than a garden or a little Tokyo would allow us to. 
So that's how we ended up in a place like uh, the warehouse. Mm-hmm. So you said this was this was actually your first immersive theater show you've ever you ever did. Um, did that um, scare you? Well, I mean, immersive is a funny word. I've this is Lisa, and I've done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna do that again. <laughs> You'll just know. Um, okay. I, um, I've done projects that are immersive for a long time. This was definitely the most. Uh, the largest production of sorts, but I've done shows in cars and I've done shows in community gardens and nursing homes. And I've done shows in like fields up in Vermont and in barns. So yeah, it's a tricky word immersive because I think so many things are immersive. Even Rogardis, like Woodboy, this last, um, the last iteration of it was certainly immersive and also took place in a proscenium. So for me, this wasn't, completely new, but so many parts of this were new that it was a huge learning experience. Yeah, I, I think we, we talked about this, that the definition of immersive is so broad that I've done, I've done plays in cars too, but I never thought of that as immersive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's just because we didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're like, oh, well, we don't have a theater. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, you're right. It's very broad. Um, I remember even reviewing a show where it was, it, they said it was an immersive show. And I guess I could see the immersiveness It where there was, um, basically you walked into this, basically it was one room and you walked in and they acted out the play and the play wasn't on a traditional stage. Like the play was more like in the middle of the room where mm-hmm. there was like seats and a dinner table. Uh-huh. And I mean, I guess it was immersive in the way that See, this is where it was troubling because it was just like, oh, this is just I felt like it was a it was a different way of doing theater because you're looking at them do out do the acting at the table and you basically stand up and you watch. Mm-hmm. But like you don't talk to anybody, you don't interact yeah. with anybody. And I was like, I remember going to that show and thinking, man, this is just kind of like I guess weird placement. And I'm standing because I and I don't get to sit down, but I don't know how immersive this is. Um so I think this word immersive theater kind of can sometimes be thrown around and for some shows. And I, I don't know. I just remember watching that show and being like, wow, this is I don't know if I can call this immersive theater, though they're calling it that. Like, I don't I don't feel immersed at all. I feel like they're just doing a play in the middle of the middle of the state, middle of mm-hmm. the room. And I'm just standing up watching. It's uh, that was yeah. that was a little disappointing. I know. I wonder, actually, like the definition of immersive, because in my yeah. head, what's coming to mind is it means something that breaks the fourth wall and acknowledges that the audiences have bodies in the space. Mm-hmm. And I think about that, like, I so I practice clown, and I wonder, for me, that's even part of it. When you look at the audience and share humanity with them, that's being like, oh, we're all here together. So I think while I wouldn't classify that, you know, I wouldn't put my clown show out there as like immersive theater. Um, I do think that it's a huge spectrum. And especially now with VR um, and the things that we're able to do, what we, yeah, it's a tricky definition because it's still being formed and growing. What do you, what do you guys think? Do you guys think it's, how would you define it? At least uh, it sounds like that one factor, which is um, the interaction between people in the audience and the actors. If there's, if that doesn't exist, um, I think I think a lot of other things you can like kind of like 
throw out. But if you don't have the interaction between the audience and the actor, uh, I think that's probably not immersive. Mm. What do you guys think? Yeah. I think that's probably the big yeah, difference. I think, I think that's an important part of it. And I also feel like that there's like this overlap, like you're not sure if you're in your life or you're in the li- world of the story. Mm. I think the, there's an overlap of worlds that has to happen in some way. So even if you're just being a spectator in the moment and not interacting, that you feel like you're not in your usual comfortable space. Because like if you go to a theater and just sit there and you're a complete spectator to the story, that's a completely different feeling. Like you're, it's, it's the difference between a passive audience and, and an active audience. I that's, guess. How I, that's how I felt in that show. I, I still felt like I was just a member of the audience. I was just standing up this time. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, like having just having an uncomfortable seat does not make it immersive. Yeah, it was like, oh, there's a struggle. The, you had the <laughs> struggle of having to stand for the entire show, and it's like, oh yeah, I, I can feel for you. I feel for you now because yeah. I, I feel the tiredness. <laughs> and I, I I feel like that interaction with the story can take on different forms. Of course, um, right. but yeah, just you standing in the corner watching a play versus sitting in a seat, that doesn't make it immersive. Yeah, for sure. A bummer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you guys did a lot of research. Um, uh, how long would you say it took um, to formulate the kind of the aesthetic you were you were looking for, as far as when you were right when you were actually writing this idea down? Um, well, we, st- I mean, sh- Lisa and I started writing stuff a year and a half before, or like yeah. a year before rehearsal. <laughs> It shifted a lot because our very first workshop was like, we just took a ton of Kaidan stories that we loved and adapted them in different ways. And we actually had structured it so that there were four guides that had a framework story that they had all come together for a specific reason. And then there were four tracks that you would follow a guide. Each of you would follow a guide, the audience would. And then they'd all come back together at some point. And it was just, it felt really cumbersome and it felt like there was no strong through line of anything that felt like it made any impression on the audience or had like an emotional through line. Yeah, and um, um, yeah. for for um, folks who didn't see it, we settled on something different. Kana, mm-hmm. our protagonist, finds you. And we actually cast four different Kanas. So instead of doing four different characters, we did one character portrayed by four different women and yeah. audiences were in groups, but they did it all on a separate track, meaning the audience didn't start together and, and end up as a big group. It was 12 people at a time went in six different times in the evening and ended at six different times as well. Yeah. So there was a, at least three groups going at any given time during a show. So you had this big building and we took over like two and a half floors of it and we had different zones broken up. So you could be in what we called zone three, but there's a group behind you and a group ahead of you that you would never see as an audience member or were even aware of. And they each had a different Kana who were like, who was their guide. And I do think that talking about aesthetic, the, the building was a huge character in the show. And so I mean, it made it, we did find out we wanted it scarier after the first one or two workshops. And then once we got in the building, we were like, okay, a lot of this work is already being done. And then also you have to like write 
you know, new scenes for different passageways that were there. So thinking of like the aesthetic, I mean, I think Chelsea and I have both talked about it being our show and then also a show we were catching up to. Yeah. Yeah. Because the design was a huge part and the building was a huge part and there were so many cogs working in the machine that, um, that it felt very, very communal in this really beautiful way. But to be like, oh, we sat and we're like, yes, this is the aesthetic. It never felt like that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're right that we had conversations where we felt like we couldn't move forward writing because we didn't know where the play was going to take place. Right. So it's really hard when you have that warehouse versus Little Tokyo, like how you're going to structure and how long even the scenes are going to be. And like we were kind of halted there for a little bit before we really knew where we, we were gonna have this play. Cause we, it really was site specific where we had to write around the rooms and the passageways and that um, that crazy elevator that was in the building. Yeah, that was we one never... of the best parts. That was a great part. Really, yeah. really brought some, a, a feeling of like nervousness. You never, you're like, oh my gosh, what's gonna be on the next level? And the sound, exactly. yeah, it was great. Yeah. But and we, we couldn't have imagined that elevator. It was just gifted to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also, I think what was beautiful is that we had the structure of these kaidan, these um, Japanese ghost stories that we got that were translated by um, this man named Lafkari O'Hearn, who renamed himself uh, Yakumo. So uh, talking about developing, we had a bunch of these stories that they're like folk tales. They didn't originally have an author, but the first person to bring it to a Western audience was this man, who at one point was a character in our story. Um, and so we just played with different iterations of those stories. I think we had, I mean, we must have had at least five, maybe 10 really lovely ghost stories that didn't make it in there based on these um, old tales. Okay. And then some, a few were new, like in the, in some sections, the section where you could go alone into individual rooms that were less structured, those we took a little more liberty with the stories. And, but mainly, the big rooms you saw where you got like a 10 minute scene, those were all adaptations of uh, previous stories. So it, you guys keep mentioning that you guys were gifted with this building and this building, that building was great. It had so many <laughs> great things. Who in the organization of Rogue um, helped you find this place? How did they know about it and how did it come to light? Daniel. <laughs> it was Neil. He's one of our ensemble members. He was our production manager actually um, of, for the show. And I believe he, so in in the ground floor of this building, at the time we were doing our show, they were building an escape room called Hatch Escapes, I believe, and they're open now. And I hear they're very good. But there was, um, th that, that building is an actual functioning storage building and was functioning at the time of our play. So all the floors we weren't on were active storage units. Wow. <laughs> and there's, there's like stuff that's been there since the 1920s. Yeah. Um, but I think Anil was connected to the guys who were building the escape room. And there was this movement by at least one of the guys in the family business who wanted to go more into entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I think he knew him somehow and then came to the to the warehouse and thought it might be a great fit for us. Anil, Mark, oh God, Chelsea, Mark Sahayam. I'm not sure how to say Anil's name and I'm <laughs> But he's amazing. Cut this out. <laughs> do anything, hire him. He's a great actor, and he can fix your life. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about a lot of just like pre-production stuff and stuff like that. But we actually haven't. Um, for anyone listening to this podcast that 
didn't know anything about the show or the, sto the story or anything like that, I mean, any of you guys want to give them like a brief summary or a kind of idea of what this uh, actual play was about and what it is about? The play is about a woman named Kana, who is the owner and proprietor of a storage facility called Mori Storage in um, Koreatown area of L.A. And she goes missing. And then so the audience actually receives an invitation to come and help the workers of the warehouse try to find her. So you go in and you find her office a mess and there's all this information about ghosts and Japanese ghost stories and all this research and crazy stuff. And then you get sucked up into the warehouse and find out that she's been kind of taken over by a, a certain spirit that she angered many, many years ago. And you and her are haunted by them and kind of have to find your way out of the warehouse. Right. That's what I remember. Uh, do you, um, as far as the uh, the production goes, because like you're telling me that you think it's going to be in Little Tokyo, but you're not sure it's Little Tokyo and you're still writing the project schedule. Was it hectic? What Was it not hectic? What, what were your feelings at the time when you guys were trying to pin this all down and things were random, you know, changing and stuff like that? Stress. <laughs> we felt lots of stress. It was very stressful. Yeah. <laughs> It's good that we all like each other a lot because, um, you know, it's a it's a lot. And a rogue show is a lot. Like, I mean, I think what's beautiful is that production value. But it's also like, oh, and then this is happening. And you're like, oh, gosh, we didn't expect this. So we think, um, yeah, there's a lot of hustle and a lot of questioning about where it would be and how it would be. Um, and, you know, it's a huge cast as well. Um, I think it was over 20 people. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys pick the did you guys pick the actors? Or did someone else pick the actors? Sean Sean, um, the director, cast it, but I was at I mean, I think Chelsea and I were both at some um auditions. Sean's a really uh lovely person and so it's a pretty open room. Like he's like, What do you guys think? You know, we we work together on a lot of things. So if we were in the room and he was working on a scene, he could suggest cuts, we could ask him things and suggest things. So there were there are those feelings of hustle around the logistics and but in the room it felt good i mean it's a really amazing cast our stage manager was really amazing we had such a great crew and i think everyone was really excited about the project so once we knew what was going on everyone felt galvanized and excited and then it's also exciting to work with east west like it was they're a different crowd they're you know regional more of a regional theater with a a different audience base than our own um so that was a fun new thing as well yeah the actors were good i remember actually i was tricked a little bit at that very beginning uh, this is a long time ago but i still remember feeling like oh my gosh i'm, I'm kind of a doofus i can't believe i fell for this <laughs> but i i i thought because since it was close to halloween like I saw some, I remember when I first walked in and you have some of the employees that work for the company and hmm. they're talking stuff like that. And I remember one of the girls was talking about something she could see ghosts and she believes yeah. in ghosts and all this stuff. And I mean, I find myself in this, this like long conversation with her thinking, Oh, this is just, this is one of the other girls that's going to be on the show coming with us. And she's dressed up in a costume. This is so interesting until I was like, wait a minute. No, I can't believe it. <laughs> Well, Doc, Doc of course she's of course she's in the show. Yeah, she's actually a psychic. She works as a psychic and she's an actor. So yeah. 
there were a bunch of people in the show that are into that stuff as well. Um, yeah, she she's a special gift, so it might not have been an act at all. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I do not think that was an act. She, oh wow, she's real. She's a real psychic in real life. She yeah. wasn't just acting that day. Okay. We had a couple paranormal like experts in the cast and people who worked with us who um, could actually talk about their own personal experiences just in general with ghosts and spirits and all that kind of stuff and actually maybe have had their own experiences in the warehouse when we were working. Um, did you did you guys have a horror background before you guys did this show? Um, well, I, um, I worked with Roe as a puppeteer and then I did a solo show about death. Uh, so the macabre is up my alley. I also was writing concurrently last year another show about a pretty intense, uh, it was an adaptation of a real life uh, murder story. So I, I wouldn't call my background horror, but I definitely deal with um, darkness in my writing. Kelsey, however, has more of like a, she's, you're more on the ghost train, right? Yeah, I, I write a lot of macabre. Everything's pretty dark that I write. I, I think I was told that when I wrote Wood Boy, that was the darkest, most twisted show that Rogue had ever done. <laughs> and there was a lot of backlash about it. Well, um, but I, I do write ghosts. It was and dark. It was dark. But the original po- Pinocchio was dark. Is that exactly. Everyone, everyone exactly. Always, Thank you. So it's not like this is. It's not like it was coming out of left field or anything. Like, whoa, yeah. Pinocchio, where is this coming from? Not all my fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, I write lots of dark things and monsters and ghosts especially are like yeah, perfectly up my alley. You've got a really mm-hmm. cool script in development right now. Um, you, I mean, you have a script about a haunted house as well as a, a TV show that you're writing about a haunting as well, right? Yeah, the TV show has is like a halfway house for monsters. So there's lots of things happening there. Anyway, this is oh, yeah. not outside our our realm necessarily. As far as you're sounding, it sounds like you go go towards this. You go towards uh, this this area. Um, there is the the classics, Dracula and you know Frankenstein, a lot of those horror things. But as far as a um, as horror goes in theater, I mean, you can you can there are some, but it's really not. I don't know. I don't believe it's milked as much as it could be as, as far as other genres when it comes to theater. What do you what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I feel like it's kind of untapped territory. Yeah, that when you I mean, being it's so kind of easy to scare people like you don't need to have a big scary monster at the end. It's better if we never really see a monster. If you just feel them breathing in the room, just being in a dark room with a bunch of other people and not knowing what's going to happen. That's yeah. exhilarating and so scary. It's like you can, if you can get that feeling when you're watching a scary movie, but you're living it, there's nothing like that. That's that's pretty incredible if you can pull it off. I think that uh, doing a horror play is a delicate balance because you want to take care of your audience mm-hmm. and let them know they're not in real physical danger while also playing with that, right? Um, and making them feel really afraid. And I actually love that. that care you have to give, that extra care you have to give to make sure people are actually okay and they have a way to communicate if they're not. So I think um, as a storyteller, it's a it's an interesting dance. And as an audience member, it's a, it's a dance as well. Um, I feel like immersive 
horror and immersive theater go hand in hand. Um, mm -hmm. they, they really play off each other well. And I think that our saturation of screens, like how, how often much we look at screens make us crave something more. So when we go to the theater, we want to move our bodies. We want to be like, oh, look around. Um, we want to be more engaged than we usually are in our passive um, screen-based life. So I think that's why things are popping up. And then also, yeah, I think people are just getting excited and have access to things. I know like the horror circuit, like haunted houses and even those individual journeys that people take have been around for years and now it's being blended with more artistry and more poetry. And I think that's great. I don't know why that's happening, but I love it. You made an interesting point about when you when you're like maybe in a movie theater and watching a horror film it's it's you've got this distance but when you're actually in a theater they're right there and maybe you have to you have to take more responsibility for what you do to the audience members since they're literally right in front of you maybe that maybe maybe that could be a deterrent for why people might do less uh, less horror shows because they've got this uh, this mm -hmm. issue of proximity and like i don't know what what do you guys think about that yeah and also uh, Sidebar, but you have to take care of your um, actors in a certain way. Like, the, you know, every audience uh, is very different. I actually understudied Kaidon, so I went on a few times, and it's a totally different experience depending on who's in that room, and they can change your story. And so um, it takes a specific kind of performer who likes that and who has the dexterity to shift with the show as well as steer it and maintain clarity. Um, so that you you get to where you have to go while also being flexible with the audience. So I think it requires a lot. Um, and certain mm -hmm. performers like aren't up for it. You know, we had some great people we worked with in workshop that um, didn't return because they they're more proscenium based folks, which is fine. Yeah. And I think horror on its own, just even in a, a movie or anything, is hard to do. It's one of it, to do it well to really get a, a genuine scare out of people or whatever you're trying to do, it, it can be very difficult to do that because you're always bordering on this line of we're taking ourselves too seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of my favorite genres is horror comedy. Uh, horror, what would be like a horror comedy, would you say? I'm thinking like Shaun of the Dead or What We Do in the Shadows. Okay. Um, things like that. <laughs> or even Zombieland. Yeah. Like these things that are, they can have these genuinely scary moments, but they're mostly in this kind of comedy framework. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But those horror movies, though, that like just, they tip just a little too far and they can make you laugh. But then also when you, there are these awkward moments when you see like scary stuff or things that are just, you don't know how to react to it, yeah. that can elicit laughter instead of a scream. So yeah. I feel like there's this weird, I don't know. It's uh, horror's like this really tricky beast yeah. to do well. So that's probably why a lot of people don't do it, especially live when you can't control some things. Yeah. I think you're so right about the connection between horror and immersive theater as well, because even when I've gone to immersive theater shows where there was no horror involved, just the process of going through, going into immersive theater and you're, you're meeting these people and you're going into this new world is 
that's kind of just scary, just all on its own a little bit. What I really like about your show is I've gone to immersive theater shows where they've had they've such deep backstory that it's like part of the challenge with all of the deep back, backstory is like, well, how smart can I be when I'm walking in so I can suck up all of this information? Because now I'm in this new world that I didn't know anything about. And now, now I feel like I've absorbed like two two books, or maybe in like the first few minutes. And now, okay, now I can enjoy myself because now I'm in this world and I have an understanding of it. I felt like I did, I wasn't forced to do that. I felt like uh, the the uh, Kaidan project was very um, was very easy to kind of just slip into and understand. And um, the act, especially the main actress, I can't remember her name. It's been so long. But she really she did a really good job of just keeping it simple and making me feel like of like every single moment was just something I was more focused on the experience and the story as opposed to trying to memorize a whole bunch of facts and how and how am I going to do this and do that? I thought that was really well done. Yeah, that was something we talked about extensively. Like that's this other layer of playwriting for this rather than just writing a, a normal proscenium play is how is the audience going to interact with the story and what could we possibly ask them to remember? Because mm-hmm. I, I even do this because I consider myself relatively smart when I go to immersive things and I always have this moment of, oh no, they told me that piece of information. I've already forgotten it. It's only been five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was definitely, I was definitely there. <laughs> I think I saw a show last night, and that happened to me. Oh really? Oh yeah. Well, I completely forgot. Like, oh wait, they told me why I was here, and I've forgotten now. Wow, I'm a moron. <laughs> so, but no. we so we talked about this a lot when right. we were trying to write this. Like, what what is not overwhelming, and how can we get the information? How can we even um, say it a few times that doesn't feel like we're babying the audience, but still like have enough repetition that we can retain it without it being distracting or and it was cumbersome. Because um, one of the great things about a rogue show is you have a lot of dramaturgical support because the designers know the show really well, so they all weigh in. Then we had East West who was hosting us. Then we had our own dramaturgical um, Dylan, who's a dramaturg um, for a few rogue projects. And they all come from different backgrounds. So people who are more um, theater-based will want specific things people who are more uh like immersive or or like um immersive experience based is like what do we do like what are our actions and then people who come from a more um experimental practice are like don't explain anything so it is a whole spectrum of (laughs) what the audience wants to do and how they want to engage how much they want to know i think changes so it's like a mixture of like you're trying to there's pop music and like there's jazz and you're like Mm-hmm. Where, can, where can I find this middle this middle road or something? I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did you guys think? You uh, did you guys learn anything from going through this process? Well, I think what's really great is that uh, Chelsea and I get along really well, and I really couldn't imagine um, making something with anyone else. It's really hard to write with someone, um, but we I think we really trusted and we do trust and respect one another. So we started uh, the Rogue Lab together, which is Rogue Artist Ensemble's Writers Group, where we pair writers and designers um, to make a play over the course of nine months. It's just like a regular writers group. They, they write a draft of a play, except that we, we give them a designer to um, 
at inception so that they can help shape the piece, much like a rogue show does. And I don't think that would have happened if Chelsea and I didn't like each other and didn't have a good experience during Kaidan. So that was really cool. Um, I think I... Uh, what, really, what really connects you two? Why, why, do you, why do you like each other so much? Is there something that really connects you as, as people? Yeah, Chelsea's the number one best, man. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we balance each other very well. I feel like I can talk to Lisa about anything. She's super <laughs> smart intellectually and emotionally and is so open with just about everyone that she meets. It's like kind of magical where I get super cynical pretty easily where she walks in a room and kind of lights it up and you've heard her laugh and it's just like, she's very, has that kind of mother earth quality about her that brings everyone in and makes it all warm. And there were some moments during this where we, had to kind of support each other with certain people who are asking certain questions and were being a little aggressive about it, <laughs> where I could feel Lisa kind of faltering a little and I would jump in and then she would find I was faltering and then she would jump in. So we could, we were kind of our, each other's protectors. And I feel like we've carried that yeah. <laughs> along yeah. to different projects as well. Yeah. And I feel like if you can find that protector, in a collaborator that's kind of one of uh that's a very magical thing oh my gosh <laughs> yeah <laughs> also chelsea yeah. so much for rogue she's you're the marketing director and you do communication and you were there at the box office like chelsea does so much for this company it's incredible and um she's such a hard worker and Oh, yeah, also in that grounded way, like we did balance each other out. And I feel like you have a lot of institutional knowledge and knowledge of working and trust in scripts. Like the way you work is, I, I think this play had to be really balanced of like, we know what this is, but we're open to finding out more about that. And you like, a thing I love about Chelsea is that you're, um, she's really exploratory. Like she's like, okay, let's go in here. And I think I know, but maybe I don't. And it's this way, um, I honestly, I think women have a certain way of working that allows for an openness, a horizontal plane of sharing ideas and a generosity of spirit that I really um, love. Um, it's a new year. Um, do you guys have any other projects in the works or plans to release any projects? And if you do, um, I'd love to hear about them. Are they immersive? Are you trying immersive again? Are you trying something else? Are you going back to more of a standard play situation? Um, well, Rogue as a company is actually working on an immersive show right now that starts previews on October 12th. It's okay. called Senior Plumber's Final Fiesta. And you're welcome. Please let me know if you want to come. Um, Ooh, it's I, a, think I, think I, do. I think it will. Please, yeah. Please, yeah, please um, let me know. It's, yeah, I'll email you. Um, it's in West Hollywood and it's in actually in Plumber Park. It's site specific and it's about the life or at least how he remembers his life. Um, a, uh, the life of Eugene Plummer, who the park is named after. Yeah. Um, and he was kind of a fabulist. He kind of had fantastical yeah. things about sharks and various stories. So it's kind of a, an exploration of his memories and his life. And it's, it is immersive. It is interactive. You get to wander around you get to drink a beer, sit in a saloon, go into nightmare stories, go into his old house, things like that. It'll be a lot of fun. And I'm one of the writers. There's three writers on that. Okay. Tom Jacobson, and who else is the other writer? 
Uh, Diana Burano. Great. And Sean Walsey, um, yes. the artistic director and directed Tidon is directing that as well. Um, right. Yeah. Um, what else do you have cooking, Chelsea? <laughs> um, well, we have yeah. this writer's lab coming up that we're working on. I'm going to, I'm actually going to do an adaptation of Frankenstein. It's just funny that you brought Frankenstein up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, and beyond that, I'm just in grad school and working on a lot of writing projects, but those are the kind of main rogue things. Yeah, and I am actually, so we're doing an installation of Kaidon at the National Folk Art Museum in Santa Fe. They invited mm -hmm. us to um, set up some of the puppets and scenery as part of their exhibit. I'm not really sure what's going on. We're just in talks about that. But uh, a first a group of us are going out in November to start that conversation and start that project. So we're really excited about that. And um, Chelsea, am I allowed to talk about that? Yes, right? I think so. Yeah, all right. Yes. We're talking. I'm also directing a show called Cleo, Theo, and Wu at Theater of Note. It's written by Kirsten Bangsness, and it goes up November 1st. And I'm so excited about it. We're in rehearsals right now. Um, I'm cooking up a show in the Rogue Lab as well. Um, it's an adaptation of a book. And I have a bunch of little projects here and there. But yeah, it's full steam ahead. And we'll we'll see what happens next with Rogue. I know Rogue artists, is plan are we're planning things for a few years in advance now. And I think Chelsea and I are both going to be involved with stuff in the future. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, is now that you're seeing more and more immersive theater, especially in Los Angeles? What are your thoughts about that? Do you think it's uh, going to just... Uh, keep getting bigger and better. What do you think the future is? Do you, do you think it's going to change into something even more different than it is now? What's what's the future of immersive theater in your eyes? I know this is like a really <laughs> big question. Um, I think, I hope that there's going to be more and more collaborations between companies because um, there are a lot of really talented companies out there um, doing very interesting and kind of cutting edge things with technology and with just like intimate experiences and there's different companies that you go to for different kinds of experiences um i was on a panel at scare la this summer with some of those people i was the only one i brought i brought a life-size puppet on stage and felt very silly because none of them use puppets <laughs> in their immersive <laughs> shows um but it felt like just just with the guys who were on that panel like if any of us teamed up with one of them, that would be a very unique experience. And everyone's drawing from different experiences of their own theater work. And I don't know, I ho I'm hoping more and more people will, will look into collaboration that way. What do you think about the audiences that come to these immersive theater shows? Do you think, do you find a difference between the, the type of person that will come to an immersive theater show versus a person that's going to come to maybe a traditional theater show? Do you, do you see a difference in, in your opinion? Well, it's tricky because often immersive shows um, of high production value are costly. It's a balance, I think, because um, you have to make sure it's accessible and speak to the theater audience that is used to paying $15 a ticket. And then there's also immersive experiences that cost $100. And you want to have a production value that speaks to those people too, that they're like, wow, um, this was totally encompassing. Um, so I think that mitigating cost is a big factor in getting people um, to attend. Yeah, I think it reaches to a broader audience. Um, and it, you know, so many people, yeah, it's hard to say 
why people like something or why they don't. Um, I do think LA, we're starting to speak the language of immersive theater more. Like even you, you're, you're starting to be able to judge them or even define them more because you're seeing you have a broader palette. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that there's more than enough people who like this sort of stuff, e even as we're seeing like escape rooms pop up and everything, um, the audience shifts and grows, but it always is anyway, so. Right. And and during Kaidan especially, we had all these people who were subscribers to East West Players come to our show. Not a whole lot of them, but we did have them come. And many of them were a little bit older than our normal demographic or the demographic you would expect to come to a walk around horror immersive show. But they were really adventurous and excited and they came without knowing what they were getting into. And all of them left just like just gushing about it or at least like thinking about theater in a different way. So I, I also think like there there's a group of people who seek out this kind of experience and and don't necessarily go to normal theater or quote unquote normal proscenium theater otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Put the quote marks in. <laughs> um but then there are people who maybe don't seek this out, but when they do come, they're changed and they're excited about it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it can reach a whole broad audience. It's just it's somehow finding that language to explain it to them or know how how to interact with the story. We're getting better at it, as Lisa said. Yeah, maybe it's, it's just going to take time, more time, more people coming in, like you said, coming in, not necessarily going to it traditionally, but going and then like being amazed and letting everyone know. And maybe maybe one day we'll be we'll see just as many immersive theater shows as we see standard uh, standard shows and um, maybe it won't even become a new thing anymore it'll be the old thing but it'll just be a common thing oh another immersive theater show oh this yeah. is <laughs> and and there are companies like speakeasy society who have this long episodic story that they're telling over several years yeah and i, I met people from haunting.net like this whole group of people because i went to one of those shows mm -hmm. i had no idea what was going on and we we, I stayed to talk with them after the show. It was much, our talk was much longer than the show itself. But we were all talking about uh, comparing notes, comparing experiences. It was a little bit like if we had all just caught up on the TV show that we all loved. And we're like, you know, and so it yeah. felt like, oh, it's just, it's just like, oh, did you see the X-Files last night? Well, let's talk about it. TV in real life. Like, <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of basically what's going on there then. Yeah. Like yeah. real life interaction in real life, episodic television. It's like Netflix, except in real life kind of situation. That's yeah. that's really cool. I mean, this is the golden age of television, they say, the second one. Yeah. <laughs> well, can, it can be a golden age of immersive theater, too. Yeah. And also a big shout out to the companies that have been doing it a long time. Like yeah. Chelsea better than me, but like Wicked Lit has been around for a while. Speakeasy, you know, and there's all these companies that have been working in this capacity, even, even like bending the, I think about like four larks and it's not mm -hmm. exactly immersive in the story, but when you walk into the space, it's a whole experience. So I think that there's people who have been playing with the boundaries of space and audience participation for a long time. And we're just hopping on board with them. Yeah. It takes a lot of, um, when you mention episodic kind of shows and stuff like that, that takes a lot of dedication 
So I think I think when we're talking about this audience, I think you're also talking about an audience that's very dedicated. Maybe like uh, a comic, someone who's really into comic books, or someone who's really into thing. I, I I can like I can imagine like someone to come to one show like Kaidan and be like, oh, this is a great show. And he spent one day there, but those episodic ones, it's like, mm-hmm. all right, I, the show's not over. I I, I went here. I, I I have to come back again. It's like, um, these people must have serious. Uh, devotion and connection to whatever's going on. I think that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you there's, got these pocket of people. Yeah. There's, there is actually this, I'm forgetting now the company, um, but there was a show that lasted about a year and you had, you signed up and you, and it was about like a, a boy or an old friend of yours that had disappeared. And there were some like meetups and then there was online stuff. And then there was one big like event that you showed up where you found him and figured out the mystery, but it was basically a year long experience that takes dedication. But they, the guys I I was talking about, yeah, I don't have that. I don't have that dedication. (laughs) I'm like, wow, I I have high respect for the people that have this kind of dedication. It's like the same people that you read all the way through like war and peace or something like that. I always want to be like the, one of those people. Like, oh yeah, I read War and Peace. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. All right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like making a piece of work that lingers in people's consciousnesses when they're not at the theater is the dream, and to get them to do that is genius. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, to provoke someone's imagination for a whole year—that's mm-hmm. asking a lot. But I think that's also really generous. Like, how cool is that? To, to give an audience opportunity to know a, a piece and then dream about what could possibly happen in the future. 